modern saxophone goes from low B flat to high F sharp, but it's possible to play way beyond that by entering what's known as the altissimo register. Altissimo exists on most woodwinds and uses isolated overtones to increase the instrument's range by one or even two octaves. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played down in the pinky keys, music played on the palm keys, and sometimes music that's played entirely in altissimo. Thank you all so much for listening to this show. Strong Songs is entirely listener-supported, and that can mean financial support via PayPal or Patreon, but it can also just mean spreading the word about the show. I don't have a marketing department. This show totally spreads by word of mouth, and I really appreciate everyone who tells a friend about it. On this episode, it's solo time! We're going to be talking about some of my favorite instrumental solos, why I think they're great, and what they may have in common. It's an episode I've been wanting to make forever, and I'm excited that I finally get to do it. So, let's push back our chair, adjust our solo mic, and blow this thing. perhaps no more venerated sort of musical performance than the instrumental solo, that moment when the lights come down and a member of the band steps forward using only their instrument and takes the reins, leading the band to a new place. A good instrumental solo can be transformative, it can lift a song to a new level, and it can express emotions that even the most artful lyrics can only hint at. Over the years making strong songs, I have talked about a lot of brilliant solos, from Steve Porcaro's surprisingly hip keyboard solo on Toto's Africa. to Queen's strategic Brian May deployment on Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) Lee Morgan's crackling trumpet phrasing on the Jazz Messengers is Monin. (laughs) Alex Lifeson's kite and anchor conception on Rush's Tom Sawyer. Dave Grohl's rigorous drum phrasing on Queens of the Stone Age's No One Knows. Nina Simone's staccato piano centerpiece on Sinner Man. Oliver Nelson's unusually formal tenor saxophone solo on Stolen Moments. more recently Elliot Easton's immaculate guitar breakaway on the car is just what I needed. And that's really just a sampling of the solos that I've talked about. There are so many more instrumental solos that I've had a chance to analyze on this show over the years. And over those same years, of course, I've heard from so many of you asking me to do an episode listing some of my favorite solos. What are your favorite guitar solos? What are your favorite saxophone solos? Can you make a list? Can you break them down for us? And I do think that that would be fun because it's fun talking about solos. And moreover, I think that it's interesting. A solo is basically a micro-composition, and a lot of my favorite solos, like Miles Davis here playing on So What, have a lot of things in common with a lot of my favorite compositions. Some of those solos are very controlled, short, you know, 8 or 16 bar solos in the middle of a rock song. Others, a lot of my favorite solos are extended jazz solos, improvised compositions that are at least in part made up spontaneously in conversation with other people in the band. 
Really, any instrumental solo that you'll hear in a modern context, like a rock or a jazz context, has some element of improvisation and some element of preconception going on. It's kind of a spectrum of how spontaneously the solo was created, but there's always some element of both. And because most instrumental solos are shorter than the overall piece, they're just kind of this one small section, and because due to their nature as solos, they're typically largely the work of one person, they wind up being really cool little musical artifacts to analyze because they always exist in the context of a larger composition, but most of the best solos tend to tell a complete self-contained story on their own. And that brings us to Strong Solos, a new series that I'll periodically come back to. And each volume is going to revolve around a different kind of idea, a different central element that I want to talk about as it pertains to a variety of different solos. So here on Strong Solos Volume 1, we're going to be talking about one of the linchpins of building a strong solo, theme and variations, or motific development. And the first solo that we're going to be talking about is a solo that I have loved for years. Kind of an underrated solo in my opinion, and one that any 90s kids out there will definitely remember. That's right, the first strong solo that I want to talk about is Eric Shankman's killer guitar solo on the Spin Doctor's 1991 hit single, Two Princes. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Two Princes by the Spin Doctors? That's really the first solo that you're going to talk about. You could talk about, like, Jimi Hendrix or Wes Montgomery or Slash or Eddie Van Halen. There are so many guitarists out there that you could focus on. But here's the thing. I really want to talk about the concepts of theme and variation and of motific development. And I think that Eric Shankman's solo on Two Princes is a beautiful example of that. It's such a well-put-together solo, and it really goes to show how if you build and develop your ideas, you can wind up in the end with a solo that really holds together that feels like a little story that elevates the song around it in the way that this solo does. So let's just start with theme and variations or motific development, the concept of taking a melodic idea or a rhythmic idea, establishing it, and then developing it as a way to build a sort of a coherent musical phrase that communicates with audiences and carries them along, that sort of builds a little story out of the building blocks of rhythm and harmony. There are probably people who would tell you about the subtle differences between theme and variations and motific development. I use them kind of interchangeably, and I'm speaking kind of broadly here about the topic, so don't worry too much about the difference between the two of them. I'll change them up and use them kind of interchangeably in this episode. So a common approach when composing, whether spontaneously composing an improvised solo or sitting down to compose something, a common approach is to create a melodic motif. Some people pronounce it motive, I pronounce it motif. It's a simple, single melody that can be easily repeated and built upon. There's no one way to do motific development, but typically if you're going to establish a motif, you kind of got to play it a couple of times so that people get it in their ear. So say I've done that, I've established a motif, maybe like a five note motif on the piano, and I've played it a few times, my audience has learned what it sounds like. Next, maybe I want to change it a little bit. Then maybe restate the original. Then maybe I step a little further away and add a couple new notes. Now that I've established a framework, I can really start to play with it. Maybe I stretch way beyond the initial motif that I introduced. I develop it a whole bunch of different directions, but I always keep coming back. I keep some element of the original motif, whether that's harmony, the notes that I've chosen, or rhythm, and just the rhythmic aspect of the original motif. Now, two things that I want to underline as we get into it. First of all, motific development is not essential for a great solo. The solos that I'm going to be talking about in this episode do feature a lot of nice theme and variations, a lot of development of core motific ideas, but those are just one type of solo. There are totally great solos, especially great improvised solos, that don't really use motific development at all, that are going for something else. I won't be talking about those on this episode, but I may talk about them on a future edition of Strong Solos. 
The other thing worth mentioning is that theme and variations or motivic development, those are very old musical techniques. They go back farther than my knowledge of music does. And while I'm going to be talking about jazz and rock solos, of course, this approach to composition goes way farther back. But you know, I'm going to stop you right there, Ludwig, because your symphony number no. five, yes, a beautiful example of motivic development, but I don't want to talk about Beethoven right now. I want to talk about the Spin Doctors. It was a hit single in 1993, but Two Princes was originally included on Spin Doctor's 1991 album Pocket Full of Kryptonite. This is an album that I definitely listened to as a kid, and I remember this song, as well as some of the other songs from this album, well. It's got a great groove, it's well put together, it's a pretty simple song, it's really just four chords. It goes from D major, to B minor, to A major, to G major. So that's really just a 1 to 6 minor to 5 to 4. It just goes through those chords a whole bunch of times, and then eventually goes to the bridge, which goes to the 4 chords. So there's a lot of blues in this song, and that gave Eric Shankman a lot to work with because there's a lot of commonality between those chords. The 1, the 6, the 5, and the 4, those are the 4 chords. There's a reason that so many pop songs use them, and one of those reasons, at least, is that you can use a lot of the same notes on each of those chords. So long-time Strong Songs listeners will hear that this is a pretty simple arrangement. It's really just electric guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. Spin Doctors was a four-piece band. They kept it pretty simple. This recording keeps it pretty simple. So let's get into this solo and talk about why I think it works so well. So let's just start there with the opening phrase. The opening phrase of any solo is pretty important because it kind of sets the table. It tells the audience where you're coming from and kind of gives a sense of where you're going. Shankman begins this with a pretty simple thing just revolving right around a D. It's not a super distinctive opening statement, but of course he immediately repeats it and varies it, which gives it this sense of cohesion that it otherwise wouldn't have. let's just look at those first two phrases again, because it's kind of just textbook naturalistic development. There's nothing super wild about what he's playing. He's not being deliberate or showy. He's not trying to make it obvious that he's doing motific development. This could have just kind of come to him as he was playing. It's a natural thing for a musician to do, but it gives listeners an anchor point. Like, it's really kind of three variations on a motif. You've got this first line. It's really all about that motif. That's really kind of the motif that he's developing. It's just right there on that D. So the first phrase. And he comes right back to it. Logical stuff right there. You know, there's some nice guitariness in here too. He's kind of slipping and sliding and bending notes. Let me do this on guitar instead. So let's take those first two variations and put them together. You get a very tidy progression of ideas. So in just the first two bars, he's established a motif and developed it. So you're very anchored in what he's doing. He's developing his ideas very quickly. And so then, to complete the phrase, he plays the motif one more time and moves up into a new place on the fretboard and a new place melodically. So rather than just hearing this guitar solo that you've probably heard a whole bunch of times, try to hear those individual parts of it like they're individual components of a sentence. It's really pleasing, right? It has a kind of a sing-song quality to it. It's very tidy. He doesn't waste any notes, and over the course of four bars, it lets him establish an idea, develop that idea, move up the fretboard and move a little bit higher, seamlessly transitioning into the next section of the solo. And in that next section of the solo, he introduces a new idea by quoting the melody of the song. That's some economical playing, and it ties back to a lesson that I learned very early 
when I was learning how to improvise and specifically how to improvise jazz. So a jazz tune may have very complicated chord changes. It may take you a little while to learn your way around them. But a nice thing about learning a jazz tune is that the first thing that you usually learn is the melody of the song. And that actually gives you something safe that you can always go back to when you're playing over a particularly tricky passage. The melody was composed to work over that chord progression, so you can always go back to it. And it's something that you'll hear a lot of great improvisers do quite a bit. It's not necessarily that they don't know what to play over the chord progression. It's just that calling back to the melody is a nice way to recenter yourself if you've been going on a sort of harmonic or melodic flight of fancy. Now, I don't think that Eric Schinkman is lost in this chord progression. It's a pretty simple chord progression. I think that he's just having fun and he's recentering the solo around a new idea. And that idea is the melody of the song. So that melody, That's the main melodic hook of the song. That's the thing that gets stuck in your head when the song gets stuck in your head. So it makes sense that Eric Shankman would channel that into the second part of his solo. First, he does a nice slide up on the third and first string. Then he deliberately quotes the melody. He keeps that quote going with a little blues riff that sounds kind of like the melody that's sung. And then he quotes the melody a second time to end the phrase, but in the spirit of motific development, he develops it. He adds a couple of little extra notes, little kind of curly cues of his own. And immediately after he finishes that phrase, he begins playing a riff that leads into the bridge. He kind of plays over the bar line, transitions into what he's playing on the bridge, which is a little bit more riff-based and a little bit less motific. So I hope you're starting to get a sense of why I like this solo. Every part of it is very carefully considered, even though I don't get the sense that Shankman sat down and wrote this out. I think he probably worked out some of the riffs that he was going to play, but it also has a kind of naturalistic energy to it. This is just something that a good soloist, a good improviser, does naturally, and he does it really consistently, especially through this first part of the solo. He introduces an idea, he repeats the idea. Once he's got the idea established, he repeats it a third time and uses it as a jumping off point to shift registers to a new part of the solo. Then he quotes the melody. He goes into a nice melody quote, kind of continues that melody quote, plays down to a second restatement of the melody with some variation. And after carrying the listener this far, he goes into this nice pentatonic riff that goes over the bar line and beautifully into that G7, that four chord on the bridge. It's an elegant eight bars of guitar soloing. I really think a lot of it. It's why I've always really liked this solo. So let's listen back to it. And I want you to put your ears on and try to really appreciate each of the notes that he's playing, each of those ideas that he's knitting together into this steadily building little story. So ears on, here we go. It's a good solo, right? When he kind of unleashes the fury on the bridge there, he goes into much more just kind of standard guitar pentatonic blues licks. It works because he's built you up to this point. He's done so much careful work assembling these kind of Lego blocks to get you built up from that low D up to the higher register, showing the melody, kind of placing you at different points in the song that when they hit the bridge, the drummer goes over to the ride cymbal and he gets to finally play some riffs. It feels earned. It feels like a climactic moment, even though it's just eight bars after he started playing. So I keep talking about phrasing and sentences, the ways that this tells a story. There's a narrative quality to a great solo, and that means that it has to kind of develop ideas in the way that a narrative does. And I think this solo, it's a great example of how to do that really economically just over the course of 16 bars. So those blues riffs on the bridge, those are great. They're expertly played blues riffs, but the point is that it's just this feeling of release and also a steady upward trajectory. If you're noticing when you're listening, and I'm guessing some of you are, he keeps getting higher and higher and he doesn't reach the very highest notes of his solo until the end. He starts down on a D. He actually goes to an A below that for a moment, but it's really just kind of centering around this D. And 
the climactic moments of the solo are way up two octaves and a fourth above that. He's playing a kind of an F sharp to a G, way up at the top of the neck. He's moved pretty much across the entire fretboard at this point, and he's playing near the top of the instrument. Hell yeah. I love that little motif that he plays at the end there. He kind of introduces another repeating idea as he bends up to the G on the first string and then bends up to a D in the exact same way down on the second string. It's hard. My fingers are not in shape for all this bending. But anyway, I love that he ends with another little sequence idea. It goes to show this is just kind of naturally how he approaches playing. He's not content to play one idea. He likes playing an idea and then developing it. This is a really nice way to end the solo. It's just this final little goodbye kiss off, a little bit of motific development of a new idea right there at the end. And that's really it. It's a straightforward 16-bar solo, but that doesn't mean that it isn't elegant. That doesn't mean that a lot of care wasn't put into playing it. And that's really why I like it so much. In the middle of this song, this kind of repetitive song, it's a fun song, but it's pretty much kind of one melodic idea than with a bridge. This solo comes out of nowhere with all of these cool melodic ideas that build on one another. It's such a well-put-together piece of playing, and I admire it quite a bit. So let's listen one more time to Eric Shankman's guitar solo and try to just relax, open your ears up, and listen to how he builds this solo piece by piece over the course of 16 bars. Here we go. Now we're all warmed up, we're all hearing themes and variations, we're all hearing those motifs as they're developed over the course of a solo. It's time to wind back the clock. We're going to go back in time, almost 40 years from the early 90s to 1956, to one of the greatest jazz albums ever recorded, played by one of my very favorite saxophone players. In 1956, tenor saxophonist Sonny Rollins went into the studio with pianist Tommy Flanagan, bassist Doug Watkins, and drummer Max Roach to record what would become the album Saxophone Colossus. On the opening track, the Calypso-inspired St. Thomas, Rollins would take a solo that, decades later, helped me understand what jazz improvisation was all about. The 1950s saw many American jazz musicians drawing on musical influences from around the world. St. Thomas did that by incorporating elements of Caribbean calypso music, channeling folk music that Rollins had heard growing up from his parents, who had both immigrated to the continental United States from the U.S. Virgin Islands. It's this pleasing, straightforward song. It's another one of those songs that you feel like you've already heard it, even if you hadn't. And some of that is because it is based on folk songs that you maybe have heard. But also it just has this kind of inimitable quality to it where the phrasing is just so natural, it just kind of flows from one idea to the next and then just repeats itself. The structure of the song is very simple and easy to follow. There's one introductory phrase, then the phrase repeats, and then there's a kind of a turnaround phrase that's a little bit longer and a little bit more complicated, then just goes back to the beginning and does it again. Once you get that melody and that chord progression in your head, that makes it really easy to follow along with Rollins's solo and follow the way that he's developing these improvised ideas over the framework that the song provides. That's basically what every jazz musician does on every song, but this song provides such a sturdy framework, I find it very easy to follow, which is nice because his solo is so sturdily put together, particularly in the first couple of choruses, which is what I'm going to be focusing on. He really goes off by the end of the solo, but at the beginning, he's so carefully controlled in what he's doing, he's building this motif and developing it in this really cool way, and it fits over that sturdy framework in a way that makes it easy to orient yourself as you listen. 
So here's the exercise that I want to give you as we go through this solo. As we listen to Sonny play his improvised solo, I want you to always be hearing the melody to St. Thomas in the back of your head. Just hear the melody going kind of in the background behind what he's playing to keep yourself oriented in the song, in the form of the song as we move through it. So we're going to be focusing on two choruses. That's 32 bars total. Each chorus is 16 bars. You're hearing the melody behind me right now. We're going to listen to Sonny play those two choruses, and I'm going to play piano along with the recording, playing the melody, just to keep everybody in the same place. Here we go. And here's chorus two. So that's it. He goes way out from there. He plays a whole bunch of really great stuff. This is an incredible solo, but those first two choruses set the stage for everything that comes after. Like There's a great drum solo from Max Roach on this tune, and after Max plays his solo, Sonny actually comes in and plays a second solo. They switch to swing, and he comes in just spitting fire, like swinging super hard right out of the gate. could have just started a solo like that. I mean, Sonny Rollins doesn't always begin his solos with really careful motific development. Sometimes he just comes roaring right out of the gate like that. But it's very different in the context of this solo because he spent so long building up to that point. And really, he and Max Roach between them have spent so long building up to that point that it makes sense for him to come in so hot when they switch to swing after the drum solo. But that's the end point. They started here. So that's what we're going to be focusing on, those two 16-bar choruses, those two times through the melody, and look at what he's playing. So now you've got a sense of the form of the solo, the form of the song, and the way that what he's playing kind of overlaps with what the melody would be playing over the same chord progression. It's a very simple chord progression. This is a really fun song to solo over. I've loved soloing on this song since I very first started learning how to play jazz, and I still love playing on it. It's in the key of C, super simple chord progression. It just goes one, then down to six dominant, to two minor, to five, to one. One, six, two, five, one, very straightforward chord progression. It repeats that, does the same thing again. Then it just kind of kind of extends that same chord progression for the second half of the melody, goes to an E half diminished, down to an A7 altered, to a D minor 7, to a G7, and then the turnaround is pretty cool. It's like a C to a C7 over B flat. I always kind of play F major to F sharp diminished, and then a little turnaround G up to C. That's a very familiar chord progression if you listen to very much Caribbean music or very much Calypso. There's a Bahamian folk song called Sponger Money that was one of the inspirations for this song, and you can definitely hear it if you track down some recordings of that song. So with that strong structure, that strong melodic phrasing in our ears, let's now look at what Sonny Rollins is playing, because this whole 16 bars is famously based around one interval, really, just a fifth, a descending fifth from a G down to a C. Now, if you treat that as the motif, what follows is a very compressed version of motific development because he really quickly moves to a kind of a tritone. He goes from a G to a D flat, and then he keeps moving in that direction and goes from a G down to a D. And this time he goes back up to the G, so it's G, D, G. So now he's kind of established this theme in variations, right? It's a very simple theme. It's two notes, almost more of a rhythmic motif than a harmonic one, but he's gone from G to C, G to D flat, G to D, so he's kind of steadily moved up. Then he ends the phrase by kind of wobbling back and forth. He kind of ping-pongs back and forth between them. He goes G, D, G, C, G, D flat, G, C. So this happens fast, right? These are short motifs, two-note motifs, and then a three-note motif. This happens over the course of four bars. It's very easy to just let this just kind of bounce past you, but once you really slow down and start looking at it, you can see that he's building something here. He's taking these little building blocks and assembling them in a way that develops another little melodic story. 
So I hope that by slowing down and isolating those notes, you can hear the way he's developing the idea because they're not randomly chosen notes. This is very particular what he's doing. It's just happening quickly and in small motions. You know what? That actually kind of sounds wrong. Let me play it the way that it's meant to be played. That's more like it. If we're going to talk about a Sonny Rollins solo, we should play the same instrument as Sonny Rollins did. So he's got the motif established, this two-note idea, really kind of as much a rhythmic motif as it is a harmonic motif, because he's moving the notes around all over the place, but that badoom, like just that rhythm, that's the motif. Sometimes that's really all you need, is just two notes, badoom, badoom, badoom up. It just keeps coming back to those two notes, and somehow he's identified that as a clear motif. You can hear what he's doing the minute you start listening for it. So he really just plays with that motif for the second four bars, just kind of moving around. Listen to the recording at regular speed. It's so playful, it's so cool. It's like he's bouncing this ball around himself. You can kind of picture him taking these two notes and just bouncing them around, these kind of two points connected by a line, and he's finding different ways to arrange those two points connected by that line to create a really cool little series of patterns. So Sonny could keep bouncing the ball around and just play with that two-note motif for a really long time. He's such a playful improviser that I get the feeling that he could just do that, just two-note ideas for like 16 choruses and it would never get old. But of course, he's also a bebop master. He has a whole lot of really interesting harmonic and melodic ideas. So this is the point in the solo where he departs from the motif that he's introduced and he starts to climb up the horn and move much more actively through the chord progression. And even while he does that, he continually returns to that two-note motif. Here we go. (laughs) So that might seem a lot more complicated. I guess it is more complicated. It's a nice little line through that three, six, two, five, one. But what's really important to key in on here, he moves through the line in a really nice way. This is some pretty inside bebop vocabulary. But remember, he's sticking to that motif and he doesn't forget the motif. He ends this phrase, by dropping from that G down to that C. Let me play it for you a little bit slower on the tenor so you can just hear what he's doing and start to get your ears around it so you can pay attention to the whole line and then really just focus on that landing pad, those final two notes that return to the motif at the end of this line. It's a beautifully put together line with a killer ending that brings us right back to that two note motif and he follows it up with a whole bunch of restatements of that motif just kind of bouncing all around the horn. He's in a really playful space here. actually takes us around to the second 16-bar chorus. We've gone 16 bars in, that's the first of the two choruses that we're going to be talking about, and he's pretty much stayed to this two-note motif, except for this one part where he kind of unleashes a little riff through that 3-6-2-5-1 turnaround in the second half of the chorus, but then he brings it right back to the two-note motif, so by the time the second chorus rolls around, he's back down there just going from G to C, G to C over and over again. He's just doing it a little bit more actively, a little bit more playfully and rhythmically, continually developing the motif that he introduced at the very start of the solo. So let's listen back to that entire first chorus leading into the second chorus. So the first 16 bars of the solo with another kind of four on the end just leading into the second chorus. Um, And I want you to listen for everything that we just talked about. Listen for his phrasing, listen to the way that he's bouncing around and developing this two-note motif, but also follow the form. Try to remember to hear that melody in the background like we listened to the first time so that you can hear the way that he's choosing to place different parts of his solo. Because he really likes to embrace that two-note motif during 
during the first eight bars, and then when the song enters kind of turnaround zone in the second eight bars, he gets a little bit more complicated and he starts playing through the changes. He does that through his first two choruses, and it's a way of making his solo line up with the phrasing of the melody. Okay, so with all of that in mind, let's listen to Sonny do his thing. So with all that development done, Sonny ends the second chorus with a very long phrase. That long phrase in Sonny Rollins' second chorus is so perfect. He goes all over the place. I mean, he goes all the way up the horn. It's a really kind of killer, very vertical phrase. He moves through a bunch of different harmony. But of course, at the end, he brings it back to the motif that he introduced at the beginning. It's basically the conclusion of this opening motific section of the solo, and what a conclusion it is. Let me play it for you a little bit slowed down so you can really focus on the contours of the line, and I'll really focus in on the way that he ends the line, which of course is a restatement of his opening motif walking from G down to C. Here we go. Mm. Okay. Here it is a little bit faster. So now listen to Sonny play it. Just follow that line as he moves up the horn. It's this just really playful, really relaxed, super grooving line. His time is so good. And just try to catch that at the very end, how he plays all the way up the horn. And then as he walks down at the very end, he comes back to that motif. And also listen to what happens immediately after he returns to the motif. Max Roach, ladies and gentlemen, there's just just perfectly placed little drum fill from Max Roach right after Sonny gets out of the way. Max just steps in, clack, 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 and kind of fills in the gap, gives a little exclamation point to the end of Sonny Rollins' second chorus. It's a perfect example of the kind of spontaneous magic that happens in a group improvised setting when the players are all feeling one another and feeling the groove, and further evidence that most of the time, a solo isn't really, strictly speaking, a solo. So now we've gone through it enough times, we've recreated it, we've slowed it down, we've played it on a variety of different instruments. Let's just listen one more time to the first two choruses of Sonny Rollins on St. Thomas. One of the reasons that there was such strong interplay between Sonny Rollins and Max Roach is that Sonny Rollins is a very rhythmic player, and he was playing a very rhythmic motif. And while a motif can be primarily harmonic, a lot of the most interesting motifs to me have some kind of strong rhythmic element. And it's for that reason that I actually think drum solos can be very interesting to analyze along these lines, because when a drummer uses motific development, it's often very clearly defined since they're only working with rhythmic motifs. And that brings us to this episode's third strong solo, recorded just a couple years after Sonny Rollins made Saxophone Colossus. And that solo, of course, is Joe Morello's inventive, highly motific solo on Take 5, recorded in 1959 by the Dave Brubeck Quartet.
Now you probably know Take Five. You've at least heard it. It's a very, very famous jazz recording. It was written by Paul Desmond, the alto saxophonist in Dave Brubeck's quartet, and recorded on their album in 1959 called Time Out, one of the most influential and important jazz albums of all time. A lot of good stuff happened in the late 50s in the world of jazz. Now, this song is very famous for its melody, for Paul Desmond's beautiful sound. I saw it described once as like an alto saxophone, but also a glass of scotch, which sort of feels accurate. This song is also notable for being in 5-4 time, meaning that each bar is five beats long instead of four beats. So the counting goes like this. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And as it happens, Paul Desmond's alto sax solo on this, it's a great solo and is actually the very first saxophone solo that I ever transcribed as a wee little high school saxophone player. And there's no shortage of wonderful motific development in this solo, as I'm sure you're probably already hearing. Like, check this out. Extremely logical and beautiful solo, and one that I studied quite a bit when I was a young musician. However, Joe Morello's drum solo, which comes after Desmond's saxophone solo, is just as interesting, just as melodically complex, and unusually subtle for a drum solo. It doesn't build to a grand climax, he doesn't play a billion notes, he's much more interested in simple ideas that he then develops and develops and develops. So I'm not going to like transcribe this whole solo for you or go through it note by note, nothing like that. I just think this drum solo is such a great example of the way that a percussionist can use motific development to play what would be referred to as a melodic drum solo. This is something that I talked about in the Queens of the Stone Age episode, a very different kind of solo from Dave Grohl on No One Knows by Queens of the Stone Age, but a lot of the same principles apply. He's developing motifs in the same kind of a way in that solo. So if you want to hear some more about that, go check that out. Different genre, different sound, much louder drumming, but uh, same kind of ideas apply. So in addition to Joe Morello on drums and Paul Desmond on the alto sax, Eugene Wright is playing bass and Dave Brubeck, of course, is playing piano. That was the Dave Brubeck Quartet of the late 50s, that iconic, very famous group. So Wright and Brubeck are both just playing this vamp. Two chords, E-flat minor to B-flat minor. They play that throughout the whole solo section. Even Paul Desmond's saxophone solo doesn't go to the bridge. It's just two chords, and that really lets Joe Morello focus on what he's playing on the drums. So I hope that even as you're listening to these examples, you're starting to hear little motifs that he returns to. For example, that section that we just listened to. He's alternating between the drums and the ride cymbals. So he'll play something on the drums, and then he'll play a little figure on the ride cymbal. And then he'll go back to the drums, then he'll play that figure again on the ride cymbal. There's this constant feeling like his limbs are having conversations with one another. I suppose maybe this isn't a solo. Maybe it's an ensemble, and it's just that the ensemble is Joe Morello's left and right feet and left and right hands. The thing that makes this such a well-defined and motivically developed solo is that he always repeats ideas. He very rarely just sort of starts hitting the drums in some sort of a groove. He usually plays an idea, then plays a new idea, then repeats the first idea. Then he develops the idea. Because of the way he develops it, each little idea becomes a sentence in an ongoing story.
that sequence is just incredible, and it's totally because he's established this very strong motif. I mean, he just does a snare roll with a kind of buildup on the snare drum, and then just a big stomp on the kick drum. Also, just love the way these drums sound. You can really hear the room. So after a little while, he's developed the solo and built things up to the point where he's playing a lot of new ideas. He's playing busier, but it's still very deliberate and very melodic. He's still repeating each idea and being sure to fully explore it, to kind of ring it for all of its musical potential before he moves on to the next logical step. so deliberate and thoughtful, you can really feel him having a conversation with the instrument, running down each of these ideas and fully exploring them just to see where they'll take him. What a solo. So I hope that by now you've gotten a better sense of the variety of ways that motivic development can be applied to a solo, whether it's an electric guitar solo on a 90s rock tune, a tenor sax solo on a repurposed Caribbean folk song, or a drum solo on a cerebral odd meter jazz composition. And with all of that in your ear, I want to play one more strong solo for you, a sort of final exam for your understanding of motific development. It's one of my favorite solos ever recorded, Chris Potter's alto sax solo on Steely Dan's Janie Runaway from their 2000 album Two Against Nature. So I'm going to do minimal setup here before we listen to the whole solo because I'll give you a couple of the motifs that he introduces and develops, but really I want you to be able to practice hearing a solo for the first time and just immediately picking up what the soloist is putting down. Now I'm sure some of you already know this solo, some of you know Janie Runaway, it's a great song, but some of you probably haven't heard it or haven't listened in a while, so I'm going to go through a couple of the things that Potter does, but really I think that your ears are already primed so we can just listen to the solo, and the goal here is to practice hearing and improvise solo with fresh ears and following the story that the soloist is telling in real time as they're telling it. But I'm not going to totally throw you into the deep end. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that Chris Potter is doing, though they largely speak for themselves. For starters, there's his opening phrase. Then immediately after that, he introduces and develops a new motif like a staircase going downward. Right after that, he introduces a new idea and develops it even further, moving up the horn as he goes. Then, much like Eric Shankman on Two Princes, he quotes the melody at the climactic point of the solo. Before putting a bow on the whole thing with one final descending theme and variations. All right, I've given you all the pieces. I've shown you how this thing works. I've demonstrated how a master improviser like Chris Potter might put a solo like this together. So let's just listen to Chris Potter playing with Steely Dan and enjoy all of the creative ways that he introduces and develops new melodic ideas over the course of a very short, exceptionally well-conceived solo. Years on, here we go.
And that's it! A quintessential example of careful, deliberate solo construction. How a musician can build a narrative piece by piece, repeating and developing ideas one after another until before you know it, you've arrived at a satisfying conclusion to a small, self-contained story. That story could be told on a distorted electric guitar. Or on a playfully bouncing tenor saxophone. Or on a meticulously explored jazz drum kit. Or on an effortlessly ebullient alto saxophone. Not all solos have to be this tidy, and not all soloists rely on motific development to the extent that the players that I talked about in this episode do, but I hope that the next time you're listening to one of your favorite solos, you think a bit about how they're approaching their musical ideas, how they're developing those ideas, and where they're taking you as they go. Every great solo has a tale to tell, and the closer you listen, the more great stories you'll hear. That'll do it for Strong Solos Volume 1. This was a lot of fun, and I hope you all got something out of it, that it maybe enhanced the way that you think about motific development, and that the next time you see a musician stand up in front of the band to take a solo, you'll hear what they're doing just a little bit differently. As I'm sure a lot of you know, it's been kind of a weird year outside the world of Strong Songs, which makes it all the more important to me that I get to keep making this show. So a huge thank you to everyone who supports Strong Songs on Patreon. Patreon support really is the thing that allows me to keep doing this, so your support of the show makes this show possible, so thank you. If you'd like to become a patron and support Strong Songs, you'd also get access to monthly bonus mini-sodes, which are pretty fun. I've been having a good time with those. Go to patreon.com slash strongsongs, and of course you can also send a one-time Time donation to the PayPal link that's down in the show notes. A huge thank you to everyone who's done that as well. I really appreciate that you all value the show, that you get something out of it, and you want to help support its continued creation. I've been having a good time this year, trying some new ideas, stretching out a bit, experimenting with what a Strong Songs episode can look like, and that's been a really fun process. It's kind of renewing to try new things. We've got a bunch of cool stuff planned for the remainder of the year, definitely some neat songs that I'm going to analyze, some more themed episodes, some Q&As, some mailbag Q&As, and some guests. I have a couple of cool interviews lined up as well. And if you got a question for the mailbag, shoot me an email at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. We talked about some great sax solos on this episode, so this episode's outro soloist is Mr. Steve Pardo, who recorded this alto sax solo a little while back, and he really went off when he recorded it. It's a good time. So stick around for Steve, and I'll see you in two weeks for more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.